Welcome to the Political Economy Forum podcast. My name is Nicholas Wittstock. Today I'm speaking to Professor Sabine Carey about the logic of political violence. Professor Sabine Carey is the Chair of Political Science at University of Mannheim in Germany. She's overseeing the Repression and the Escalation of Violence project, a research project previously funded by the European Research Council. Hello, Sabine. Hi, Nicholas. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're very excited to have you on, Sabine. Today, uh, we will talk about a forthcoming paper of yours together with uh, Anita Godes uh, on journalist killings in countries with democratic institutions. In this paper, you're presenting an original data set on this phenomenon. Um, please give us some context here. How many journalists are killed annually and why is this happening? Where is this happening? And why are you focusing on democratic regimes here? Yeah, so, well, how many journalists are killed over years? It varies, obviously, but uh, last year, there were about over 50 journalists alone. This year, about 10 already. In total, we have uh, sort of around over 500 in the data set between 2000 and 2016. Uh, where they're mostly killed, well, this is sort of the surprising bit. Um, so we looked at in which regime types most journalists are killed. Um, and specifically, as we mentioned that we look at killings where the journalist was directly targeted. So not whether in the wrong place at the wrong time and happened to be hit, for example, by a car bomb that was actually targeted at somebody else, but only killings where the journalist was specifically um, targeted. And then we found out that the vast majority of journalists were murdered in regimes that classify as a democracy. So I should maybe specify what that means because mm. different people have different understandings of democracy. So some people would say, well, a democracy is a regime that where you can vote, you can um, you select representatives, you have a strong legal system, but also where certain norms are adhered to. So for example, where you um, have a free press and respect human rights. Mm -hmm. So these normative expectations of what a democracy could be is not what we use because that would be kind of pointless because then by definition a country mm. where a journalist is killed could not be a democracy right right so we focus on institute on on the institutional aspect so do we have institutional characteristics that guarantee the um uh, balance of power the participation of the electorate um and so on and so forth so the institutional side of things. So, and the fact that a lot of, or most journalists are killed in democracies, um, again, some people think that's maybe because um, autocracies don't have that many journalists. Well, that yeah. could be the case. Uh, we don't know, we don't have an exact count of how many journalists are in each country. Uh, but even if that was the case, well, part of the fundamental principle of democracy is that your freedom of speech right. uh, and that uh, people can inform themselves about, for example, their politicians in a free media. Um, and democracies also proclaim that they protect journalists. So irrespective of how many journalists live in a democracy, they should have a special status of being protected uh, from violence and particularly from state violence. Okay, so we then saw this and that was obviously very puzzling to us as well. So we wanted to find, well, who is behind these killings? And we use different sources or different NGOs that specialize on um, 
recording uh, what happens to journalists. So the Committee to Protect Journalists, for example, are Reporters Without Borders. Um, and they also record um, who's behind the killing, as you know, if that is known. And we identify whether a state actor was behind the killing, like police or um, secret services, um, death squads that are linked to a state mm -hmm. or, you know, like a sort of state actor uh, or other actors like, you know, criminal gangs, drug gangs or um, political opposition like rebel groups or militants, terrorists, those sorts of things. And we find that even if we look at killings that were perpetrated by a state actor, we still find way more journalists being killed in a democracy by a state perpetrator than in autocracy. Mm. Uh, and equally puzzling, I think, we find that the number of killings where a perpetrator cannot be identified is really high behind in democracies. This kind of goes really counter what democracies should be doing, because even if a journalist gets killed, democracies should try extra hard to identify who was behind it. Uh, and that is clearly not what's going on. So then next, we try to figure out, okay, what are these democracies uh, right. where journalists are killed by state agents? Or where is it the case that a large number of journalists are murdered without the perpetrator being identified. And we realize, well, if you are in a democracy, meaning you, as a politician, you gain and maintain political power by through elections, then your public image matters, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. that is something we've all observed uh, with the media recently uh, across the board in democratic regimes public image matters. Now, for national politicians in a democracy, they, I mean, we have seen that also with uh, attempts of former presidents to sort of limit media freedom, but in general, it's pretty difficult to limit media freedom in general. Right. Because you need the agreement of parliament and it's, it's an institutional setting that is more or less protected in a democracy where you have basic levels of media freedom. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean now for other politicians? So on the local level, local politicians, um, particularly if, so if they are elected and if they are quite influential, so might have, let's say, also large economic discretionary or economic influence, um, they still need to have a good public image. If they don't like what journalists say, they can't limit press freedom. Mm -hmm. They also can't really put a journalist in jail because, well, it would it would further scrutinize the politician. They might want to threaten them and bribe them into silence, but that would also give a politician, uh, the journalist, more leverage and more material to go public against the politician. But what turns out to be a relatively cheap, easy, and risk-free tool is to order the killing of a journalist. Mm. Um, and that is particularly risk-free or relatively risk-free if it happens far away from the limelight. So we find that journalists who work for local outlets are far more likely to be murdered and also um, if they work away from the capital because in the capital city, it's more likely that a killing attracts the attention and is investigated and then uncovers potentially that a local politician was behind it. So local politicians, if they're elected and have powerful positions, 
they need the support from the public. Um, they can't really fiddle around with media freedom more generally, but it's actually not that hard and risky to just pay someone to get rid of a journalist. And the number of um, killings where nobody's prosecuted for the crime has been at over at about 90% for the last 10 or 20 years. So that just highlights that the risk involved in organizing or ordering the killing of a journalist, especially if the journalist works outside the limelight, is actually quite low. So the temptation for the local journalist is pretty high. That is a crazy finding. <laughs> I think when I read this the first time, I was shocked. But on the one hand, I feel like there, there is something very intuitive about this, right? That in an autocracy, you, you have other tools at your disposal to control the flow of information that you do not have in the institutional setting of a, a more democratic state in the way that you're describing. Yes, um, exactly. And maybe just on that point. So obviously, that doesn't mean that autocracies don't kill journalists, right? They do as well. But the mechanism seems to be quite different. Uh -huh. So in autocracies, you're more likely to find the killing in the capital city. Usually, it's meant to deter and send a signal and to be quite public, to message to other journalists or, or the public that, for example, extensive criticism or investigative journalism is not tolerated. So it's more happening in the limelight as a deterrence, whereas in democracies, in most cases, it's a strong evidence that it's really more local politicians involved and trying to hide the fact that they're involved. So very different mechanisms. And of course, like you said, in autocracies, they have very different tools. They can shut down media outlets and, and make operating freely much harder also on an institutional level. On the other hand, then, it does seem like uh, this makes the strategy of killing journalists much less effective in a way, right? If you say that um, an important element because of the institutional constraints is that you have to obfuscate the origin of killings, that means that journalists might not feel feel as threatened, potentially. Uh, do, do, you feel, do you empirically observe that that's the case? Do you think that's a, an issue or...? I'm not sure. Um, I mean, our findings are supported by a lot of case evidence and studies that sort of focus on specific countries in more detail. And it does seem like journalists receive a lot of threats. And it seems like most journalists that were killed were also threatened beforehand. Uh-huh. Okay. But what could well be the case, there's a little bit of evidence for that, that in de institutional democracies, journalists might not really take the death threats as seriously as they would if they operated in an autocratic regime. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in October 2017, Daphne Carana Galizia was murdered with a car bomb in Malta mm -hmm. within the yeah. European Union. And she received death threats long before because she's investigating corruption. Um, but after she was killed, her husband said that they never thought that there was a real risk that she was actually being murdered. Mm, so I think they do receive threats, but it's it's difficult to tell. In some cases, there's a case in, in Mexico where a journalist received death threats and then he went to the capital city because he knew that the risk was much lower there to be murdered. Mm. Uh, he was murdered and the case made big headlines in the news, not because a journalist was murdered, because that happens unfortunately quite frequently in Mexico, but because it was the first journalist to be murdered in the capital city. So... I think a part of the reason 
seems that why so many trans are killed in democracies that they might just underestimate the risk. Hmm. And it does seem to be not that hard to obfuscate for a politician when they're involved. There's some some quotes from people investigated killings of journalists and said, well, you know, outside in a local area, it's really cheap to pay some guys a couple of hundred dollars uh, to get a pesky journalist killed. Mm-hmm. A drive-by shooting, for example, or journalists falling out of windows. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it does seem relatively low risk. And it does sound like people on the ground get the message. It, it might be hard to to understand from the outside as a researcher, but it's, it yeah. From what you're, yeah. what you're saying, it sounds like people on the ground might might be able to read between the lines. And certainly, I mean, if I was a journalist, definitely factor this in quite heavily, right? This sounds extremely dangerous. Yeah, of course. I mean, we have, of course, no idea how many journalists then changed hat once exactly. they yeah. are threatened, right? I would assume a lot of them do, mm-hmm. right? But also, I mean, especially with investigative journalism, the reason why people get into that is because they really want to uncover stories of corruption, for example, or human rights abuse or whatever. And they might not be that easily determined. And again, they might not think in a democracy that that will actually happen, that, that you know, their life is at risk. And, you know, there might also be some additional sort of uh, factors that could potentially be informative for the church to help assess the risk. Uh, because we also found that if, of course, the judiciary is more likely to be involved in corruption, or less independent, then the risk of killings also increases. And of course, there is some variation of judicial accountability within institutional democracies. Mm-hmm. And again, right, for a local level politician, if they think they can bribe a judge, then even if it was uncovered the case, there's another sort of security measure for the politician right. to prevent having to pay the price for it. So does that mean that judicial corruption actually makes it safer for uh, journalists to operate? No, Mm -hmm. because so we find clear evidence that if a country has an effective, independent, strong judiciary, the risk of a journalist being killed declines. Declines. And that's interesting. Pure speculation. It would be quite interesting to find out, well, what happens? What what alternative mechanisms Mm. might politicians who have something to hide, for example, because they're involved in corruption, which other tools might they then use if killing a journalist might be trickier because right. if they get caught, they can't bribe the judge. Exactly. That's that's the big question. Let me ask, what countries, you mentioned Mexico uh, as well as Malta, but what countries or what regions is this most pervasive of an issue? Of course, you know, you, you have to be at least reasonably democratic to make an appearance in your data set here. But could you just explain to, to our listeners what, what countries, what regions are we talking about here? Yeah, so if we if we look at the whole time period that we looked at, uh, so the 2000s mostly, then it definitely Mexico is by far sort of uh, topping the list. Mm-hmm. We have Brazil when it was still a bit more democratic, um, the Philippines, uh, those are sort of the top, top countries. Interesting. And you spoke to this a little bit, but I would just want to probe a little bit more. What makes local level politicians so aggressive? What is it that they feel like they have to protect so aggressively? Yeah, so it's not sort of all local politicians under all circumstances. Mm-hmm. It's only when they are elected mm-hmm. and when they have some significant power, which means 
they need their public image and losing office would, would really hurt, basically, right? would really limit their political influence. If they didn't, if they weren't politically influential before, so for example, because they were elected, but there is another local institution that is not elected that is politically more powerful, mm-hmm. then also there would be less to gain in remaining in power. So it's really uh, that combination. And we see that they choose their targets wisely in choosing more the the journalist who works remotely uh, far away from the capital for regional outlets. So the number of international journalists or journalists who work for international outlets um, that are murdered is extremely small. Hmm. It's a sort of a couple of handfuls or something in our data set. I mean, those are, of course, the ones that make international media and attract attention, which I think is part of the reason why overall it actually doesn't happen that often. But local journalists are, are sort of far more at risk. And we we found a quite interesting case in a data set uh, from Indonesia where in the 2000s, they, as a, as a way to sort of um, make the country even more democratic, they delegated political power to locally elected politicians. And overall, that is seen as sort of a, um, a positive move for more direct democracy and more direct accountability if you can elect your local leaders. Um, and they also were supposed to get quite significant um, uh, power also over economic resources. So during that time, when the system was a change to increase political power for locally elected politicians, the number of journalists killed also increased from, I think it was zero for quite a long time, and then three very shortly during the run-up to local elections. And people looking sort of in more detail at these cases basically said it, it was the fact that the uh, journalists uncovered the sort of the power grab of the local politicians. That was the reason why they were then murdered and they assume local politicians to be behind it. And that sort of exemplifies the pattern um, that we also find on a global level. Fascinating. So does that mean that more centralized or more, um, yeah, more centrally organized democratic regimes are less likely to resort to such um, measures? That's a good question. I think one crucial point is that democratic institutions on the national level uh, might not be sufficient mm-hmm. to protect journalists on a local level. So if there is some sort of diffusion of political power on a more local level, it would need to go hand in hand with, for example, very strong independent judiciaries Mm -hmm. on the local level and really paying attention to what goes on on the local level so that you can't have these uh, kind of authoritarian enclaves within nationally democratic systems. It's really interesting. I think um, your work really speaks to the problem that um, the labels that we have in social science might sometimes be more obfuscating than enlightening. It it really seems that uh, speaking about democracies might just not be all that useful, right? To really understand what is what are the social relations, the economic to political relations that are really shaping people's lives on the ground. They really have to have a very distinct logic, right? And I think it, it, it's very misleading to just think, oh, well, uh, you know, I don't know, Germany is a democracy, the UK is a democracy, and uh, Mexico is a democracy as well. So we would expect those uh, those regimes to work quite similar. Yes, that's true. I mean, of course, every regime is, is very different. Um, 
And in order to learn something from one regime for another regime, we have to generalize on some dimension, uh, which means we will always lose some specificity of a particular regime. Um, but we certainly can you know, identify patterns and um, you know, an, an obvious pattern for political scientists, of course, is a country more or less democratic, right? So we started with broad categories of, um, you know, are there elections? How free are they? How regular are they? How constrained is the executive once in office and so on and so forth? Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense. And we found out a lot of information, for example, that overall countries with such institutional democracies are on average less repressive, meaning using less violence against their citizens than others. But of course, it doesn't tell us uh, variations within these regimes and within the types of human rights violations. And of course, that can vary quite a lot. And it would certainly be wrong to then assume, well, if there is this broad pattern, then it holds in all cases. Uh, that is definitely not true. So with the example of the killing of journalists, definitely worth looking at a specific type of violation and we see actually that that does happen in democracies. There are some other studies that look, for example, at the type of torture that ha happens in countries where you have um, high levels of participation. So, you know, regular free and fair elections. And it turns out that in those cases, you still have torture, particularly of people who the elect the, the politicians don't um, they don't depend on their votes. Mm -hmm. So it's more marginalized groups. Um, and in some cases, if politicians torture groups of people that are seen as threatening to the general electorate, you know, that, that certainly doesn't cost them, often doesn't cost them votes. Um, so we really need to look into more detail under what conditions, what types of state institutions violate which kinds of human rights or in terms of the torture or killings or whatever. What is certainly not the case, I think, uh, you know, initially when this research started showing that democracy is about protecting human rights, one of the arguments was that they are just normatively more predestined towards protecting human rights um, because they believe in, they believe in protecting human rights per se as such, uh, but also because maybe they're more used to, um, making concessions, to finding compromise, to negotiate with opponents, using more um, or, or nonviolent tools of solving conflicts. Um, so, and I think we have now enough research to suggest, well, this normative explanation for why democracies might be better uh, and better protecting human rights is just not true. Um, it just seems that in democracies, politicians cannot afford to violate human rights in many cases. But if they have the right incentive, like for example, being involved in corruption, they might find alternative ways of using repression sort of without getting caught or without paying the price publicly. It really seems that, that, that violence is just sort of one tool among many to politically get what you want. And it really depends on the institutional setting, what, uh, what tool you'll end up choosing. And potentially also on like the, the relative bargaining power of different of different groups. One question that I have is so in the institutional settings that you look at, to what extent does it matter what national state capacity is? Uh, is is this really a problem of just regions being out of control of, of the sort of central government? 
and they sort of do whatever they want. And then you have some local level uh, journalists that try to report on what's going on because you have nominally like free uh, free media because that's set at the national level. But then, you know, yeah, it's, it's a case of regional um, politicians being out of control, being uh, like treating those areas like their fiefdoms and ultimately like resorting to violence because they can. Uh, no, I don't think actually that's the case. Okay. At least, at least not uh, as a strong pattern in democ in in regimes also that have some you know have democratic features. Mm -hmm. So one interesting finding uh, in our study on the killings of journalists was the link between level of economic development in terms of GDP and the likelihood of a journalist being killed. Mm -hmm. because if you think it was sort of state capacity, right? So journalists are murdered in the context where um, the security sector was underfunded or the judiciary underfunded and not functioning properly, then you would expect that there should be a link where in poorer countries, we're more likely to see the killing of journalists. Mm -hmm. And that is not the case. What is even more interesting is that in countries that are richer in terms of having a higher level of GDP per capita, we are more likely to see the killing of a journalist by an unconfirmed perpetrator. Now, this I think is particularly interesting because having an unconfirmed perpetrator seems to suggest that you know, the, the, the police um, is unable to figure out what's going on. And you would think that that is possibly linked to capacity. Uh, funding and richer countries are better able to support and fund their security forces and normally they do right so you know we rarely find I mean it's all arguable but you know in in most countries with a high level of GDP they have well-funded security forces and have the resources to investigate yet we don't find that having a high level of economic development leads to better investigations so even the cases in, in the EU took an, an incredibly long time uh, to be investigated. So um, the journalist from Malta I mentioned earlier was murdered in October 2017. And literally just uh, last month, the first suspect uh, confessed to being, in, uh, being uh, basically uh, carrying out the murder. And there was a lot of pressure from the EU, plus a lot of uh, resources, economic financial resources, and it still took a long time. So that just doesn't quite seem the case. It's, it's almost more like if you have more money, you can be more imaginative in, as a politician. Um, there are also curious cases, for example, from almost all Western European countries during the Cold War that created highly secretive small armed troops to potentially fight against an or to fight against a potential invasion from the Soviet Union at the time. And they I mean that's speculation, but they probably anticipated that they wouldn't be um, too screamish about uh, protecting certain human rights of their targets because those groups were completely secret and even outside the control of parliaments. But you would have thought, well, the European Union, uh, the EU, or was in with help of NATO, they were not that short of funds, especially during the Cold War. They could have used different types of forces. Yet they chose to they chose to create these small, highly secretive troops. They met every year in Brussels. They trained with NATO 
in the event that they might come in handy mm. uh, in the event of, a, for example, Soviet invasion. Having a lot of resources available doesn't necessarily mean uh, that the politicians stick to the rules. So in reverse, it's not because leaders don't have enough resources and it just happens far away. They're unable to control the violence or to punish prosecutors because they don't have the resources. That just doesn't really seem to be the case in, in most instances. So it's really more about willingness. And um, yes. the question then becomes, um, you mentioned independent judiciaries earlier. What are the institutional features that make it less likely that political actors ultimately act in super self-serving ways to the extent that they're willing to kill people who uh, would potentially undermine their, their political economic position? You know, saying, well, it's in the independent judiciaries or something like that. Well, that, that seems epiphenomenal of an institutional change of a different kind, right? Like something's happened before that, that has forced a people in power to cede that kind of authority, right? Like, how do you get there? How do you make sure that these institutions follow the, the letter and, and, and spirit of the law? Uh, in, in a way that is actually sort of like publicly serving? Well, I think it's, you know, where you tie your own hands, but also the hands of future politicians. And then you're tied it and you put the, the, put the law outside of your own hands, mm -hmm. right? So once you implement certain changes, and you might do that initially, or you come to power and, you know, your goal is to, to really restrict the opportunities people have to, to um, use violence uh, illegally. But once these laws are passed, especially in a democratic system, it's really difficult to undo them. And then, you know, they have, they have to live with these. That can, again, sort of have strange backfiring effects. So, for example, one of my PhD students, um, Felix Olszewski, he looks at the power of judiciary and how that affects extrajudicial killings um, mm. in the Philippines with the war on drugs. So, and there seems to be a trend that where um, judges were put in place prior to Duterte coming to power, who basically said he was going to rid the country of uh, drug problems by killing everybody more or less remotely associated with drugs and increasing numbers of these killings. Uh, and you don't also need a in um, you to go through many procedures, um, for example, as a policeman to to kill suspected uh, drug dealers. So, and and there seems to be a link between whether a, a judge was appointed by Duterte or was put in power before, because the president kind of appoints the, ju the judges. And it seems that where in areas where the judges were not appointed by Duterte. Uh, the killings these uh, increase, the higher numbers of killings. Now, why could that be the case? Well, if you have a judge appointed by Duterte, he's more likely to follow Duterte's grand plan of uh, getting rid of the suspected uh, criminals. So there, if a policeman would uh, uh, just charge a suspect and put it through the legal system, can be more confident that that person gets into charge and put in jail or get whatever punishment. But if the judge was appointed not by Duterte but by the predecessor, 
they might not follow that plan, but might make independent decisions. So if then a person ends up in court, they might not get charged because there's maybe not enough evidence. So in those cases, it's then kind of easier um, for the security forces like the police to just shoot and say, oh, this person attacked me and killed a person because they can't trust the judge following the same lines. So there's some sort of also temporal dependencies of, you know, what kind of rules institutions and also individuals were put in place at certain time points and then they have a legacy in good ways and in bad ways. Yeah, so it really seems that the freedom of information or the uh, freedom of the media is a crucial factor here, right? So as soon as um, politicians lose some level of control over, over the media, they have to resort to other means to control the narrative, to control their public image. Yeah, so exactly. So I think in most cases, perpetrators of violence and in particular um, state-related perpetrators of violence, they have to consider the costs attached to um, going against the law, mm-hmm. torturing someone or making them disappear or killing them. And one imp- ele- important element, of course, is, of course, whether they're being held accountable and have to pay the price for it because they get kicked out of office or maybe somebody else murders them or they're not voted back in office or whatever. But in order to be held accountable, the first step there is that somebody actually has the information that links the perpetrator to the, to the crime. Right. Right. So information plays a key role where, of course, the journalists come in, which is why journalists are targeted so much or, you know, why they are just a convenient and sort of obvious target. Um, but another way how we can see that the in information environment, or how free information can flow, affects the behavior of uh, of state agents is um, so um, in another study with Belen Gonzalez, we looked at. Uh, or try to understand under what circumstances state actors escalate repression. Mm-hmm. So usually, once a certain sort of level of intimidation um, is found, then it's usually sort of constant. And we try to find out, okay, when does it increase? Um, it's costly because, you know, just also logistically, you have to implement these changes, but also you risk attracting more international attention when you deviate from the status quo and all of a sudden ramp up, for example, torture or extrajudicial killings. So we looked into that and we thought, well, the most obvious reason why a government would increase uh, such serious repression is when they're faced with a very serious violent threat. So for example, uh, when armed conflict break, breaks out, when they're um, confronted by a terrorist group or by terror attacks, Um, or a rebel group, or when such armed organized actors like rebel groups or terrorists uh, increase their attacks on the government. Uh, So we analyze these uh, when changes happen in terms of threat to the state and how then the state reacts in changing their repressive strategies. Um, And there's a pretty consistent finding in the literature that um, state repression is a response to serious and particularly violent threats to the government, like armed conflict and terror attacks, for example. But now in this in new study that we're working on, it seems like this is very much dependent on the context in terms of uh, the flow of information. 
So we find that if these violent attacks on the government occur in a context of free media, mm-hmm. then the government does not answer with an escalation of repression. They only do that if it's in a context where the media is constrained, so where the media cannot freely report. Why is that? Well, if the media is not free, then the government can, for example, paint the target as, well, they really are a threat to the national security, for example. Uh, We really need to act harshly. So they can frame the target as, well, we needed to respond in that way for national security. Um, But they can also, they can change the story so you can kind of frame also who who carried out the violence, or right. you can simply hide the violence, right? If you shut down the media. So under those conditions, then escalating repression is a lot less costly for you because the chances of somebody in the outside world who might care about this, uh, that they find out is much lower. So how does this interact with social media? Because it would seem to me that it would be much, much harder to control narratives and to like, as you say, shut down the media if you know, people have access to these independent media outlets through um, uh, social media platforms. Yeah, absolutely. But that is why we see increasingly internet shutdowns, Mm -hmm. right, where the government shuts down social media platforms or specifically um, certain platforms, you know, like Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We see that more and more over the last few years as an attempt to block what individuals on the street what kind of photos they can take and distribute. By allowing this free flow of information, governments are usually in a pretty good position to monitor what's going on. Uh, They can find out uh, plans, for example, of protest movements, how and when and where to organize, who are the leaders to try and take out um, leaders of the movement. Uh, And of course, they can also um, freely distribute their own narrative of mm-hmm. events. Again, it's sort of a, not quite a two-edged sword, but there's still two sides to limiting uh, social media. We clearly see that it goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually during times when the government faces uh, protests, particularly large-scale nonviolent protests, um, because it's really unpopular if a, a government is seen using violence again in a nonviolent opposition. Mm-hmm. Um, so we definitely see that so we can already infer from that that the government is worried about the information that comes out but also we shouldn't forget that the government can use the information spread on social media to their own advantage in trying to control um, uh, their political position that makes sense as we said in the introduction your your general research work is a lot on different aspects of political violence and civil conflict, especially also with a focus on the use of pro-government militias, which I'm inferring there is some element of, of governments being able to uh, to use these other actors to, to do their dirty work and being able to like point uh, at a, in a different direction to ultimately... Um, deflect uh, from their own involvement. Is that generally the pattern that you see or are there, I'm assuming there are more nuances to this? That is correct, there are indeed more nuances, but in general, there's, well, there is certainly a, a general link between the countries that have these groups, these program militias, and so with program militias, we mean uh, armed, organized groups that have an established and linked to the government, so for example, to the military or their uh, uh, private guard or the president or something like that. Um, 
but they're not part of the regular security forces. Right. So in countries that have these types of groups are on average also more repressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, they're more repressive in the sense that they that we find more extrajudicial killings, uh, more torture, more disappearances, but not more political imprisonment. Why is that the case? Well, if governments use these forces to distance themselves from the violence they commit, then you know they wouldn't use political imprisonment because with political imprisonment, the state is very clearly implicated. Right. Right. Um, so I think. Uh, trying to deny accountability for violence definitely seems to be motivation uh, of state actors to outsource violence to to these groups. Another one also seems to be that oftentimes the military is not willing to use excessive violence, particularly against civilians. Mm. Um, and we've also seen, you know, cases um, Syria and other places where military members then defect once they're asked to shoot at civilians, right? And of course, as a leader, you don't really want your military to defect. So it might be better to hire unemployed young men, which seem to be quite a common feature, um, to to then, you know, give them weapons and unleash them to uh, the political opposition or um, ethnic groups that support your political position, for example. So I think denying involvement in violence is definitely one side of the story. Um, but there also seem to be right, other ones, like just it might be easier to use excessive use of violence. So do you feel like it's really more about the opportunity to lo- use violence in those cases where it really depends on whether you have access to those kinds of resources? Because I feel like, um, or let me ask the question a different way. Um, what do you think people get wrong about militias and political violence most often? <laughs> okay, that's quite easy, I think. <laughs> so I think in most cases, people think that those groups roam around in countries where any form of governance has collapsed, mm-hmm. right? So failed states, um, Somalia, especially you know, from a few years ago, or... Um, other cases where you have no strong governments. Some, uh, some even have suggested to, to use the occurrence of militia to identify a, a state as failed or, 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 and vice versa, so have a very, very close link between. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't see these groups in failed states, right? We, we do observe them. But uh, most of the time, they are in, in, in countries that definitely do not qualify as failed states, but where you have uh, clearly a government also still in control, they might be fighting against rebel groups, um, but they're still in control. And there doesn't seem to be a strong link between um, the resources the government has and the kind of forces they use. I mean, it seems like, um, so we distinguish broadly between two types of programmed militias. So one type uh, we label as informal programmed militias, where there isn't, as the label says, an informal link to -hmm. the government. Um, Like, you know, death squads have almost always a a not formalized link. And then there are these semi-official groups where they are officially recognized by the government, 
Um, they might even sort of have a legal framework, but they have a very distinct and task and very different setup and independent of their regular security forces. So they're still different. And now we find, well, you have these groups only if you can afford them. So it seems like more richer countries have them than poorer ones. Um, so, but that's also a kind of group you would not find really in failed states. Um, it seems just more likely that when people need to, yeah, often detach, like I said before, detach themselves from violence um, and they think they can get away with it, then they invest in these forces. Uh, and it's not the case that they just sort of appear when the government loses control. So in a different study, we try to find out under what conditions we see these informal militias more likely. And it turns out that it's, um, it's in countries that are far away from the nearest democracy, meaning they can't, they, the link is harder to detect for the nearest democracy. But at the same time, if they are very dependent on aid from democratic countries, okay, what could explain that? Well, if a country receives aid from a democracy, then usually democracies have certain conditions attached for the recipient. And that these days always include some sort of basic human rights performance. So those countries that are dependent on aid from democratic countries would be really bad for them if they were linked to uh, illegal abuse of human rights. So they're more likely to then outsource that type of violence to ir irregular armed groups like these pro-government militias. But they only seem to do that if they're locally far away from another democracy. Because if they have a neighboring democratic country, they're probably quite interested in what's going on in that country and able to find out what goes in in that country. So does that also mean that the link between uh, foreign aid uh, and violence is a direct one? Does that mean that the countries that receive foreign aid are more violent? Or does it just mean that it impacts the kind of violence that political regimes are engaged in? Yeah, so we did not look at the general level of violence. Mm -hmm. So, right, uh, that I can't say. It, but it foreign aid, again, here just from democratic countries, because that does not apply to aid mm -hmm. from non-democratic countries, um, certainly changes the incentive structure right. of the recipient. On the one hand, as I guess it is intended, it increases the cost of using repression mm -hmm. in the recipient country from the government. That's also kind of the, the, the point of the <laughs> political conditionality of foreign aid, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but one of the effects could be that indeed, the government, the recipient government is less likely to use violence. Right. But another option, if they really think that they need to use violence, for example, to stay in power, they start to sort of weigh up the different options for example, not using violence and maybe being risk, uh, risking getting kicked out of office or using violence to stay in power but trying to minimize uh, the international cost that they might have to pay. Right. So, And we found that regimes that are just dependent on their public image, just that, like the local politicians in democratic countries, are more keen uh, to use tools to avoid being held accountable for the violence they feel they might have to commit. Right. So it's it's more shifting the rationale, but 
Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about sort of a direct link mm. between foreign aid and overall levels of violence. I, I think there's not necessarily a clear link in that foreign aid reduces human rights violations, Fair right? Enough. Because foreign aid also means that the recipient government is dependent on what the donor thinks of them and less dependent on what their own public thinks of them. So we certainly know that it, to a certain level, reduces responsiveness of of political leaders to their own government, to the, sorry, to their own population, to their own electorate, if they get a large chunk of their resources from elsewhere, like foreign aid, for example. It seems striking to me how seductive or how cheap, how attractive it seems to be to use violence to achieve political ends. Because if I think about it, this seems incredibly costly, incredibly complicated to me. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm uh, overlooking things, right? But if I, if I were to try to like come up with ways to like make, to, to get my way as a, as a local politician, even in a semi-democratic context, it seems sure, you know, um, maybe if, if it's about like killing specific people that might seem like a viable strategy, But to engage in large, like maybe not large scale, but like relatively large scale violence using political militias, that seems incredibly costly. It's, it's, it's striking to me that this is such a common strategy. Could, could you speak to what, I'm, what am I overlooking here? Yeah, well, I'm not quite sure what you mean by costly, but if you mean costly in terms of sort of monetary costs, well, that can be quite cheap, right? You can release prisoners from prison, criminals from prison. You give, some, give them some weapons. And they can also be just machetes or whatever, and let them lose on on your enemies and say, well, if you, you know, if you do your job well, you can keep that weapon and maybe enrich yourself personally. Mm -hmm. That is pretty cheap uh, to do. Uh, so I don't think it's necessarily that costly. I mean, what is far more costly is to build up a formal security forces where you invest in training, uh, in selecting training and monitoring to ensure that those people do exactly what you want and ideally also under difficult circumstances uphold the law, that is far more costly uh, mm. than not doing those things. It seems to me that these conflicts must be zero-sum in some way, right? Because if there is, if there is some sort of positive-sum solution to the issue at hand, right? If it's about I think I think what I'm trying to say is that I feel like it's it's striking to me how pervasive just political violence is in general because it seems such a costly solution to most problems to me. But um, that that might just be my naivete, I suppose. Um, but um, I don't know. It just seems odd to me. Um, but okay. Um, sorry, or do you want to react to that? No, that's fine. I, I think I guess I've also become a lot more disillusioned. So when I started <laughs> out, so when I did my um, when I wrote my MA thesis, actually, I was looking at the effect of regime change and human rights violations, and I found that if countries become more democratic, uh, they respect human rights. And I I pretty much bought the whole argument, which at the time included also this normative aspect. It, it's nice. Mm. It, it's, it's nice to think that that would be the case. Um, but at least over the last 10 years or so, when I look more into, uh, you know, sort of avoidance strategy, when, or under what conditions, you know, we have certain state actors use violence. I just think that's nonsense. I mean, it's a mm. really nice idea, but I just don't think that applies to most of the evidence we have. Now that, mm. again, it doesn't mean that all politicians are how to find new intuitive ways to, to violate basic human rights. I don't think that's right. the case at all. But 
there certainly are some people also in those regimes that under certain conditions are motivated to do so. Like, you know, with the killings of journalists, we find if you have higher levels of public corrupt, public sector corruption, then also the risk of journalists getting killed increases. Well, if you have corrupt politicians, they're more likely to have something to hide. So they're more likely to use this extreme measure of killing a journalist, mm. right? So it's only certain types of individuals under certain types of conditions, but it certainly does show that you need to have strong institutions, independent institutions, oversight, independent from politicians. Otherwise you risk having these particular individuals under certain circumstances that will abuse it and find other ways to circumvent the restrictions uh, to commit human rights violations. So it's not, we cannot rest on the fact that we think, well, we've been a democracy now for X number of years. We have had excellent human rights records. Surely this is all ingrained in us and it will never change. I think that's extremely dangerous because I don't think that's true. Uh, interesting. So do you think that there is a, like how likely or how dangerous do you think it is for established democracies, whatever that means, um, to, to backslide into more violent um, uh, circumstances? Well, I don't think we have to look that far uh, to see examples, right? Hmm. I mean, um, we had, including also peaceful protests in, for example, um, the state of Washington in the US, where protesters were put away uh, into unmarked vans uh, by unmarked armed individuals, which is more the scenario when I look at program militias that happens in not so democratic countries, right? right. Or, you know, in conflicts like in the Ukraine, where mm -hmm. we see those sorts of things. Um, so I don't think we have to look that far. And, and we've seen quite clearly that if we are exposed to a narrative where maybe too much accountability or the media is a, plays a negative role, that then also attacks on journalists increase in a country with a very long history of free media and overall good human rights. So I think we've, we've seen, unfortunately, quite reasonably that it can change quite quickly. Yeah, it's really quite shocking, I must say. I mean, yeah, I, <laughs> I completely agree with you, right? I think... Uh, it's it's naive to think that um, the fights are all over and um, everything is uh, won and everything will be uh, hunky dory and democratic for here yeah. from here on out. I think that's yeah. yeah. Um, but again, we've also seen right that if we have strong and independent judiciaries, for example, mm -hmm. right, uh, there are limits to what can be done, uh, what politicians True. can do. So I, I think you know strengthening these institutions and making them independent of individual preferences and 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 really give them the right power that they need to you know, do the check and balances jobs that they were tasked to do. It's not going to collapse re in, in a heap really suddenly. But Absolutely. it still but means that you just have to continue to be alert. I think it's, it's exactly. that sort of but I mean, at the same time, you know, um, the situation is never like the, the external situation is never stable, right? Like once you have a confluence of several crises that is longer than just a year, right? Like, let's say you have a pandemic, a recession, and now you have like a couple of terrorist attacks or something like that, right? If, if something fundamentally changes, I think those those institutions might be very quickly pushed to to, to breaking points, potentially. So, yes. Um, yes. And what is kind of this somewhat scary thought is that in a democratic system, right, the, 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 the fundament, one of the fundamental basics is that politicians react to uh, the preferences of their electorate. Mm -hmm. So 
we can imagine certain circumstances where the electorate might actually prefer the violation of certain civil liberties or human rights of maybe certain types of individuals. Um, and then institutions might change, or at least the behavior within existing institutions certainly will change, right? And, and, and that is kind of scary. Mm, um, absolutely. So, you know, there's some, some other studies that show that if, I think it was based on surveys in the United States, that if, um, individuals are asked uh, whether they are more or less supportive of using extreme interrogation methods mm. um, on suspects. If that suspect uh, is linked to potential uh, a possible terror attack and uh, has a Muslim name, then respondents are far more in favor of using extreme ways to find out potentially informative information or what they think might potentially be informative information. Mm. So, you know, the public itself, the electorate, I think can change their preferences for upholding certain types of human rights. And once the public no longer prefers strict adherence to basic human rights, uh, then, you know, including and maybe particularly democratic countries, that is a pretty dangerous path. Uh, Zabina, thank you so much for being on. It was great to speak to you. Thanks, Nicholas. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long, and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wittstock. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.